Scripture. Father, this is your word, and we pray that you would be with us, that you would help us, that you would enable us, God, to hear it, that it would dig deep within us and become so much a part of us that we live it out to your glory. This we do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to Colossians in chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, going back to an old friend. We've been in Colossians since January. Might finish it up today, in fact. But took a bit of a hiatus during the Advent season to consider some things from the prophet Isaiah. But now back to Isaiah in chapter 4. I want to read just verses 2 through 6. Colossians in chapter 4, please. Hear the word of God. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person, as you may remember, we worked our way through this opening verse 2, uh, the last time we were in Colossians. And now we're going to consider 3 through 6, which really uh, can be broken down in a couple of ways. But most helpfully, I think, in that the, the first couple of verses of this, verses 3 and 4, deal with Paul's request for prayer. And then 5 and 6, uh, he speaks to us about our relationship with outsiders. So as he comes to the end of this letter, he's laying out really now, all right, I've talked to you about, about life in Christ, life in the church. Now, what about in relationship for those who aren't in the church? How should we relate to them? How should the gospel then spread to them? And so first he considers himself and his own work and how they're to pray for him and how he will proceed. And then in their relationship with those who are outside the church, how they are then to proceed. Um, No big surprise as he comes to the end that he would consider those who are outside of the church because you might remember as he began his letter, he spoke to them of how thankful he was to God on their behalf. Thankful to God for them because they had been recipients of the gospel. They, at one point in time, had been outsiders, if you will, outside the church. But then Epaphras from Paul brought this message of the gospel to them. And you remember that Paul begins by thanking God for, uh, for them. And it was a bit curious. He said, why didn't he thank them? Well, because... He was thanking God because God is the one who brought them hope. God is the one who brought them hope through the gospel of Christ. God is the one who gave them this hope through Christ, which was hope for what was laid up, as he put it, what was laid up for them in heaven, this inheritance, this eternal life that was, that was for them. And that was their hope. And we answered the question this morning, what is your, your comfort, your only comfort in life and death? That's, that's our hope. Our hope is in Christ, and so they had that hope. They'd once been outside, but, but the gospel had come to them. And so God gave, but Paul gave thanks to God for them because he knew that was a gift to them, that hope that they had, the gospel they'd received, the faith to believe it, the, the life to live it out in, in love. And, and then Paul prayed for them to remember that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding 
so as to walk worthy of Christ, fully pleasing to him. You see, their hope is in Christ. And now he says, this is how I want you to live. I want you to live this out. And so much so, I want you to be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding um, so you can walk worthy of Christ because Christ, you see, is worthy of your life. He's the one who bought you. He's the one who gives you life. So now you see, he's worthy of your life. You're to live worthy of him. And And he says that you do that by bearing fruit in every good work. So you should bear the fruit of, of being in Christ, of knowing Christ, of belonging to him. You should bear that fruit. And you should always then be increasing in the knowledge of God. Because you see, as you bear fruit and in, in, in him, you will also grow in him and, and come to know him better, which will increase, if you will, your fruit. You to be strengthened, he said, with, with all of God's power so that you can endure you can continue on, you can persevere in the faith, so you can endure with, with patience, because this life is trying, and so to, be, to, to bear with life, to endure with life, with patience, and he says, always being thankful, because you see, if you really get it, if you really understand what has happened, you realize that God has done something. God has done something where he's transferred you from the kingdom of darkness by being ruled by darkness, that is, by everything that's futile. He's transferred you from the kingdom of darkness and brought you into the kingdom, the rule of light, that is the rule of his dear son, because there we find redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And he says, all right, if you get that, then you'll always be thankful. So he wants us to walk worthy of Christ, pleasing him, bearing fruits, increasing in our knowledge of God, being strengthened all the time by God's glorious might so we can persevere in the faith so that we can endure with patience and and always then be thankful. And so he goes on to tell them of Christ because that's the guts of it. It's all about Christ. Our hope is in Christ. We walk worthy of Christ. And so he speaks to them of Christ and he says Christ is preeminent that in all things he's first. It doesn't mean that he's sort of the first and then there's our list It's not he's one and something else is two and something else is three and something else is four. Rather, he makes the list. Rather, he's first in every item on the list. He, He defines how we relate to everything on the list because he's first in every category. He's first on every line. He's preeminent in all things. And he's that because he's the creator and sustainer of all that is. He's that because he's the one who's brought reconciliation between us and God. And so Paul, you remember, lays it out. He says, and I've devoted my life to this. God has called me to bring the mystery of Christ to the Gentiles. And so I, I, I do that. I'm a steward of the gospel. I'm living out what I'm praying for you to live out. I'm living out being a steward of the gospel. His calling is special as an apostle, of course, but we're all to live that out. And he says it's, it's his calling to, to make everyone mature in Christ. It's the, it's the goal of his life. And he says that being in Christ, the mystery of the gospel is that Christ is in us. And he is our hope of glory. We have no hope outside of Christ, but he's our sufficient hope. We have him. We have, we have perfect hope. We have certain hope of this eternal life because Christ is in us. And he says, so Christ is preeminent. Therefore, he says, we're to be built up. We're to be rooted in him, increasing always in our understanding, always in our knowledge of him, following after Christ. So he says, don't listen to the wisdom of people. Only follow after Christ. In fact, he says, we must seek those things which were above where Christ is seated. He's the one who's ruling and reigning. So we're to seek him always. 
We're to, we're to seek the things above, not things on earth. Because he says our lives are hidden with Christ in God. And a day will come when Christ appears and, and it will be known to us and known to everybody. That yes, that's where our life is, really in Christ. So he says persevere, continue to seek after him. So, so put away, put to death all those things that are inconsistent with following after Christ. Put away sexual immorality and impurity and all of that. Put it away. Put it to death, he says. Put away, put away anger and malice and slander and covetousness. Put, put that all away. He said, but rather put on Christ. Put on compassion and kindness. Put on humility and meekness. Put on patience. Bear with each other. Forgive each other. All, all the offenses. Just as Christ has forgiven you. Put on love, he says. Put on Christ. This is the peace that Christ died to achieve is, is what should rule among you. That should, that should dictate your relationships with each other. The peace that Christ died to achieve. He died so that we could be reconciled to God. He died so that we might be reconciled to each other. So that, that peace is, is, is what should rule in the context of the life of a body of people, the life of the church. And he says that it's the very indwelling word of God that should inform all of our conversation. So much so that we should... We should speak always with thanksgiving, being grateful. And we should do everything that we do in the name of Christ. And, and that includes the relationships in our families between husbands and wives. That includes relationships between parents and children. That includes relationships in the context of our work environment. And so finally now then Paul winds all of this up in verse 2 of chapter 4. That was all of Colossians, by the way. Um, and says, now pray. I want you to pray. Because you realize this is an impossible life unless God helps you. This is an impossible life unless you're praying. This is an impossible life unless you're pleading with him and coming to him and saying, God, strengthen me. God, help me. Fill me with the knowledge of your will in all spiritualism and understanding so that I can walk worthy of Christ, so that I can live fully pleasing to him, so that I can bear fruit, so that I can increase in the knowledge of Christ, so that I can, I can be, be strengthened to persevere, so that I can be thankful. So, so, so pray. Be steadfast in your praying. Don't give up. Be watchful in your praying. Be smart about it. Know that there are enemies. Watch for them. There are enemies of your soul. Watch for them. Pray that God will, will stop them. They won't hinder you. And you'll be able to overcome all of that. So, so be watchful. Be watchful for the very presence of Christ in life and in circumstances. Be watchful. As you pray, and also be thankful always. And then Paul finally comes to this and he says, All right, while you're praying, pray for me. Notice verse 3. It's the same time, that is, while you're praying for yourself, while you're praying in all of these ways, he says, He says, Pray for me because, oh, excuse me, I put my watch on the wrong side. It threw me off completely. Um, not that I ever pay any attention to it, but it's nice to know where it is. Um, <clears throat> Karen bought me this watch 20-something years ago. When I was ordained, I'm afraid when it stops, I will too. But uh, at least my career. But uh, So I keep buying batteries. It keeps working. Uh, but Paul says, while you're praying, pray for me. Notice, and, and he says, I want you to pray like this. Pray for us, that is for Paul and his companions. He said, pray that, that God may open a door uh, for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I make, may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. And so Paul begins by saying, I want you to pray for me about the spread of the gospel. 
And then, verse 5, he says, So conduct yourselves widely toward, wisely towards outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So as we look at this, we, we, we learn a great deal about the spread of the gospel. We learn a great deal about, about Paul. But we learn a great deal about the relationship between praying and the spread of the gospel. And then we learn a great deal about our lives and the spread of the gospel. And how that's to take place. And perhaps a bit of a difference. And it's a subtle difference. But I think it's there. Difference between how Paul was doing that. And how we generally do that. How one who's an apostle does that. But how most of us do that as well. I want to take a look at something there. So Paul, he says, pray, pray for us. Um, pray for us. No, curious. Why? Why was Paul so anxious that they would would pray for him. I mean, God had given him this calling. God says, I want you to go to the Gentiles. So why wouldn't he just go? Why, why, why would he worry about him or other people praying about him going to the Gentiles? It was, it was his calling to go. He had a stewardship. God had given him and trusted him, if you will, with the gospel and commanded him to go. So why would he, why would he not just simply go? Why, why would he pause even to pray for himself in this order, have others pray for him. Well, on the one hand, he knew his own weakness. And on the other hand, he knew the impossibility of the task. You see, the task was that he was to take the gospel to people who didn't want to hear it. Not only didn't want to hear it, but were dead to it. The scripture says that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Jesus said that we're enslaved to sin. Uh, the apostle writes himself that, 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 that our minds are hostile towards the gospel, towards the things of God. He says that, 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 that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And so, so he says, all right, now I want you to take this gospel of Christ to these dead people. I want you to, to take it and, 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 and in such a way to give them life. And so he would know that... It was impossible. He couldn't be eloquent for that. His arguments couldn't be sufficient for that. He couldn't be crafty enough for that. How how could he do that? It would be impossible. He knew only God can do such a thing. And so he says, all right, then let's go to the one who can do this, really. Let's go to the one who can attend his word and use it in such a way that would bring life to people. Like Ezekiel said, to take out their heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. Like Jeremiah would prophesy when when this new covenant would come, that God would write his law upon their minds and hearts in such a way that they'd be inclined to it. Like Jesus said, they needed new life. The Spirit of God would have to come and give them new life so that they could see the kingdom of God, so they could understand it, perceive it. Even like Paul himself would write that God would have to say, let your light so shine in such a way that it would pour out in people's lives that they could really then see once they were blind. But now they can really see the glory of God in the face of Christ. That would need to happen if, in fact, Paul was to be successful at all in bringing this gospel to, to anyone. As Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, but God who is rich in mercy made us alive together in Christ Jesus. That would have to happen. So he knew. So he said, pray. Pray for that. Pray that this word would bring life into the lives, the hearts, the minds of people. He knew there was opposition. 
He knew there was not only the spiritual opposition that existed in the hearts of people, but he knew there was physical op- opposition to this word as well. As we walk around with Paul through the book of Acts, for instance, and we, we see his journeys, and as we read in his epistles, we realize that, that, that there was all kinds of opposition, and so he would ask them to pray. Pray that the doors would be open, that he would be able to get places. Now, when Paul writes this letter, he's in prison. Uh, you'll notice his next to the last sentence in chapter 4, Remember my chains. Now, I don't think Paul was simply praying that he would get out of prison at this point in time because Paul had doors that would open to him for the gospel while he was in prison. Remember, as he writes to the church in Philippi, he, he writes to them about, about how all the whole Roman guard now knows the gospel because he's in prison. So, so there he would say ah, that some doors are closed, but other doors are open. So wherever I am, pray for us that will be open doors. Now, if the prison doors can open, he can get out and get places. He'd like that as well. But he prays that they would have, he would have open doors because there's opposition, there's spiritual opposition to the gospel. So, so it wasn't uncommon for Paul at all to ask people to pray for him in this regard. In fact, you remember at the end of the letter to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians in, in chapter 6, He's speaking to the church there of spiritual warfare. And he writes in verse 18 to them saying, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. He says, I want you in verse 17, he says, to take up the sword of the spirit. And I want to take take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. I want you to take it up while you're praying. At all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. He says, take this word up. It's a message of the gospel. And pray that God will penetrate the hearts, minds of people and actually perform that miracle of bringing new life through it. He says, to that end, keep alert, that is watchful, with all perseverance, be steadfast, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul says, pray for me. Because I know I can be a coward. Pray for me that I'd have strength. Pray for me because I know I can get fuddled in my words. Pray for me that I have the right words to say at the right moment in time. Pray for me, I suspect he would think. Because there are times when I get aggravated with people in the midst of discussion and argument. And I, and I may want to push it in a way that it shouldn't go. Or with an attitude that I shouldn't have. But pray for me. Because I know my weakness. Pray for me. Because I know what this word is to do and what it can do. It can bring life. So pray that it, it does. It overcomes all of those obstacles, all of those barriers, spiritually and otherwise, so that people can hear it and receive and believe. Pray for me, he says. Pray for these doors that would, in fact, that would, in fact, open. And we mustn't miss the fact that he's praying that this gospel would be clear. Now, it's fascinating here. On the one hand, he's praying that it'd be so clear that people would really hear it. But then he says, now, remember, I'm in chains because of this gospel. So he says, I want to make it so clear, even if it means I get thrown in jail again. I want it to be that clear. I want anybody to miss this. And it's a mystery. Now, normally think, we think of mysteries as being relatively unclear. I mean, that's what a mystery is. But he says, I want to clear up the mystery. The mystery has been cleared up. By God Himself. Throughout the ages of the Old Covenant, it was a bit unclear because it was so 
intertwine this message of salvation, of God being present with his people. It was so intertwined with a nation that it would be easy to think it was just for them, just for the nation of Israel. But now he says, since Christ has come, we get it, we see it. It's not just for them, it's for, it's for all people. As he writes to the church in Rome, he says, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, both Jew and Gentile, first to the Jew, but, but also the Gentile. And so he walks us through that whole epistle that's, that's magnificent, so that we'd get it, so we'd see that all have sinned. And thus, all who believe in Christ are saved. Not just you, but, but Gentile as well. That's the mystery of Christ. And so he's saying, now, I, I want this to go, to, to go everywhere. But I want it to be clear. I want it to be clear. I want people to get it. I want people to see I want people to see it's about Jesus, the very Son of God becoming man, becoming flesh and dwelling among us. I want it to be clear that everybody see that this, this one Jesus lived a perfect life for us. I want everybody to see that when he died, he died for the sins of sinners. I want everybody to see clearly that this is about him in dying and rising from the dead. Because you see, when he rose from the dead, it was the proclamation that God was saying, yes, I've received your sacrifice. And though the wages of sin is death, eternal death, since you were sinless... Since you rise, it will tell everyone that you didn't die for your sins, but for theirs. And I accepted your payment on their behalf. Now you're risen, you're Lord, you ascend, you rule and reign, and a day you will come and return to them and consummate, bring to fulfillment all that you have done, all that you have bought. And, and, and so, so I want that to be clear. I don't want anybody to miss that. Do you realize how easy it is to make all of this unclear? Do you realize how easy it is to fall into the trap of, of moralism, for instance? To fall into the trap of, of people thinking that to be a Christian is simply to be a good person. To, to be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ is simply one who, who sort of does all the right things as a, a good person. Nice and humble and kind and all of that. Well, the truth of the matter is we are to be humble and kind and compassionate and all of that. But that isn't what, us, what makes us followers of Christ. That doesn't gain us favor with God in eternal life. What gains that for us is Christ himself who was that perfectly. And now anything that, that reflects him, any of this goodness, if you will, it's simply a reflection of him in us. It's easy to make it unclear. It's easy to become pharisaical. It's easy to, become, to, to have this list of rules and just sort of obey them. It's easy to fall into that. He says, no, 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 I want to be clear about this. It's about the work of Christ. It's about trusting in him. So we read through the Gospels, how could you miss it? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. How could you miss it? They spend so much time talking about Jesus' death and resurrection. Everything builds to that. That whole last week takes up a great deal of the numbers of pages for each of the gospel writers. And it's, it's all about that. He came to die, that he might die for the sins of sinners. He came to, to rise so that, that he may be declared the very Son of God, to, to, to ascend so that he may rule and reign, so that he may re return. All of that, you read the Gospels, and it's, it's about that. He says, I don't want us to miss that. I want it to be clear that it's about Jesus. 
I want it to be clear that everything that built up through the old covenant, the sacrifices and the priests and the temple, I want it to be clear that the kings and the prophets all pointed to Jesus and he fulfilled all of that. I want it to be clear that he's preeminent, that it's about him. I don't want it to be about us. I don't want it to be about rules. I don't want it to be about, about being good so that you can. I want it to be about trusting in Jesus. I want it to be clear. Let's keep the main thing the main thing, Paul is saying. Please don't let me get off of this. I, I want to be a Johnny One Note. I, I want to be, I want to be a, a person of Christ. And that people would know that it's all about Christ and Him crucified. That's all I want to know about a people. That's all I want to know about anything is Christ and Him crucified. People see me walking down the street. I want them to be able to say, I know what He's going to talk about. When people see me, I, I want them to be able to say, I know what's on His mind. I want them to simply be able to lay it out so that it really, really, really is Clear. He says, pray for me about that. It's so easy to get off of this. It's so easy to get prideful. It's, it's, it's so easy to, 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 to try to make myself look better than I am. It's so easy for me to try to hide from my past. But no, no, no. I want it to be clear that it's about Christ. So pray that we have open doors so that the mystery of Christ can be clear, can be known so that people will receive it, people will believe it and God will be glorified. Now, just to pause. It's kind of end of year, beginning of next year, kind of in that sort of transition week between last year and the next and all that. But just to think about our own lives. Because I think Paul's calling for us to pray, to pray for the church, to pray for those who proclaim. I must say it unnerves me to no end. To know, because of how God has arranged things, that much of your spiritual life depends upon what happens here. And it's important for us to pray. It's necessary for your own well-being for you to pray, frankly, for me and for the others who speak from here. That yes, doors would be open in the life of our church, that people would come through those doors, that people would hear the gospel, but to pray that we're able to focus upon Christ, that we're able to keep the main thing, the main thing, as I speak around, as I talk to people about church, as I talk to other people about our church and all that, they say, Bill, what, you know, what makes your church tick? And I said, it must be that people pray. It must be that people pray. It must be, be that people pray for me. That must be people pray for the ministry of our church in such a way that we keep the main thing the main thing. Because if there's anything that we do, it's that we do that. That Christ is preeminent. He really is. That we stay on this so much so that people have said that we're a bit unexciting. And I don't know how that can be unexciting. I don't know how the Son of God coming and living and dying and rising for us can be unexciting. Now, I can be boring, I know. But that can't be, you see. That can't be. We must pray. 
And, and it brings this prayer out of Second Thessalonians. And Paul asked that people pray for him, for them, for his, his team, if you will. He says, finally, brothers, pray for us. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1. We've been praying this for our church for years. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread ahead and be honored. That sense, yes. That's really what it's about. That's really how we ought to be praying. As you walk into this place on Sundays, you should be praying that the word of God would spread and be honored. That should be what's on your minds. That the word of God would spread. That the opportunities would be here. The doors would be open here for in people's lives, in people's hearts. And for us as a church in the community, that the doors would open somehow that we could be there to make, to make proclamation. And so we should pray, especially, I think, at this point from this passage, from these verses, for those who are called to proclaim. That's this, the job of some, not the job of everyone, but the job of some to proclaim, to pray for those who proclaim in other pulpits in this community and throughout the world, for missionaries who go places and make that proclamation. Then verse 5. Paul then comes, it seems, to those who aren't called in the same way that he's called to proclaim. So he says, conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Um, Isn't that the way it normally happens for you? I mean, how many opportunities do you have in the course of your life to stand up in front of a large group of people and make a proclamation of the gospel? My guess is it doesn't happen very often. What normally happens in the course of life, unless you happen to be called, as Paul was as an apostle, what normally happens in the normal course of life is that you have people in your life that you must answer. As he says, know how you ought to answer each person. That's sometimes why preachers do a bad job of teaching personal evangelism. (laughs) Because we think in terms of hundreds of people sitting there and we're talking. We say, well, this is how you do it. You just get a bunch of people to come and you tell them about Jesus. And you say, no, 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 we live in offices and we live in classrooms and we live in neighborhoods and we live in families. And, and, you know, when we try to gather all those people and say, I want to tell you about Jesus for the next 45 minutes, most people say no. Right? Most of the time in the course of life, how does the gospel spread Monday through Saturday? How does that really happen? Well, it happens as you come into contact with each person, as Paul says. He says, so, so here's what you need to do. You need to be able to answer each person, which means you need to conduct your life wisely. Now, that doesn't mean Paul wasn't to conduct his life wisely. He was. And I am to conduct my life wisely and all of that. But he says, in, in the midst of the world in which you live... The relationships in which you have, you need to be wise in them. So, so always be thinking, as corny as it sounds, that you're the only gospel other people will see and read, probably. You're the link, if you will. You're the priest, the nation of priests. You're the priest. You're the one who brings them to God, brings God to them. You're not the Holy Spirit. You're not Jesus. We get all that. Do you know what I mean? 
And so you need to live wisely. That always being on your mind. On your mind because to live wisely means that you want to make the most of every opportunity you have. You know, as well as I do, that in the course of our lives, we have few, really, opportunities to give any sort of verbalizing to the gospel with people. I mean, think about all the people you know. Think about how many of them you've really told about Jesus. It just doesn't happen all the time. It doesn't happen that often. And so he says, I want you to live wisely, always in your mind, thinking, I belong to Christ. I've been bought by him. My desire is for others to know him. So I'm going to live my life always aware of that so that when an opportunity comes, I can be there and I'll take advantage of that opportunity when it presents itself. So Paul's praying for him. Hey, I'm an evangelist. I'm an apostle. Open doors. Boom. Let me go through them. Your doors will be more subtle. Your doors are more likely to be people coming to you and asking you something or something taking place in their lives where you can enter in almost at their invitation or at least the invitation of the circumstance to be able to speak to them concerning Christ. Not unlike what the Apostle Peter speaks in First Peter in chapter 3. He says, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. See, see that's, 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 we're always poised. We're always on our tiptoes. We're always ready to do that. We can't always initiate that in a formal way. We can't always sort of knock on people's doors and open and say, let me tell you about Jesus. We can't always, always just sit next to them at dinner or at lunch or at work or wherever it is and just sort of spout it all out. You know that. He says, I want you to live wisely. Conduct your life in such a way that when that opportunity presents itself, you're able to take advantage of it. Which means... You have to live a real life before them. You can't be phony. You can't be hyper-spiritual. They're not going to listen to you. You have to live a real life before them. And you have to be cautious to live your life as one who really is a follower of Christ. So when that opportunity presents itself, you're not having to backtrack and go, oh, they heard me say that, they heard me say that, they saw me do this, they know I do that, they know I live... All of a sudden, you find, I can't take advantage of that opportunity because of something I've done, something I've said in the past. I've got to clean that up. I've got to ask their forgiveness. I've got to. So he says, live wisely all the time. Not as a phony. Not as someone hyper-spiritual. Not somebody sort of you know, gliding upon over life. But live a real life. So that when real life happens to them, you can speak to them about how you live and what is really true. Just like Peter says in his epistle, he says, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. And so Paul writes here, similarly, I think, he says, <clears throat> Make your, let your speech, speech always be gracious, not judgmental. How can we be judgmental? How can we who know ourselves to be sinners saved only by grace, 
How can we be judgmental of another? One of the great dangers, one of the great hindrances to the gospel is that we live in a hugely critical culture, ungracious culture, and it's easy for us as believers to enter into that ungracious culture. No matter what we listen to, no matter what we do, it's all critical, whether it's sports radio, whether it's politics and on the radio, whatever it is, everybody's yelling at everybody. Everybody's being critical of everything. And it's, it, it's so easy to enter into that. And if you become a judgmental sounding person on other matters, why would those you're in relationship with not think you would be judgmental towards them when they come to you? I mean, if that's your MO, if, if, you, if you just enter into all of that, why is it when they have difficulties? Will they not think, well, they'll just be judgmental and critical of me too? So our speech has to be gracious. We have to always be aware that grace has been given to us. You know, it's a funny thing that when we become a Christian to do that, we admit that everything we ever thought, everything we ever did was, was wrong. And then once we become a Christian, we think that we're perfectly right about everything. It's just, no, no. Be gracious. But always seasoned with salt. Now, salt's an interesting thing. You know, you, we say that you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. But if you feed him salt. So there's something about, about speech seasoned with salt, something about a life that's seasoned with salt that says, I've, there's something here. There's something here that really spices up my life. The scripture says, taste and see that the Lord is good. There's something which I've tasted of the Lord that's really good. So you need to ask yourself that question, what is that? What is that 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 turned you? What, What is that brought you to Christ? What is that? Season your life, season your your speech with that. So that people will see that God is really good and can be trusted. Season your, your, your speech with that. Draw them in. Make them thirsty for that which you have. You know, it's interesting, as Peter writes, in the verse I read a few minutes ago out of First Peter chapter 3, as Peter writes, he's writing to a church that's suffering. He's writing to a church that's being persecuted. And, and he's saying, now, people will see you, should see you, respond to this persecution and this suffering, and scratch their heads and think, you know, why do they have hope in the midst of this? And we don't have to be going through persecution to show people that we have hope in the midst of difficulty because we all have enough difficulty. We all face various kinds of difficulties. So how do you have hope in the midst of that? What, what keeps you from going over the edge? What keeps you from being overly anxious, overly fearful? What keeps you from that? And you see, that should draw people to say, well, how can you do this? How can you live through this? He says, ah, your life, your speech, seasoned with salt so that you'll know how to answer each person that comes to you. Not all of us are called to make these huge proclamations. Not all of us are called for, to that kind of ministry. But all of us are called, in some sense, to spread the gospel. All of us are called to, to live wisely. And you know what that means. You have various people with, in whom your relationship, in relationship, whether it's in your family, in your neighborhood, in your work, in your classrooms, whether it's on athletic teams with your kids around that you might be playing on, whether it's in the garden club, whatever it is, in your relationships, live in the context of those relationships wisely so that 
you'll be able to answer people when they come and answer them about Christ. So that you'll have opportunity with your speech to be gracious and yet seasoned in some sense with salt so that it draws them to Christ. Think about your year last. I did this yesterday afternoon. It wasn't as pleasant as I'd hoped it would be. Parts of it were. In terms of praying, for our church, praying for the church of Jesus Christ, the doors would open so that the gospel would be clear and, and go out. To pray that we wouldn't fall into various traps, to make it unclear, to muddy it up, so that people would really just see Jesus. In your own life, in your life towards those who are outside the church who don't know Christ, living wisely, all of us? In what ways? Could we live wiser? Are our speech gracious? What way could it be more gracious? Seasoned with salt, in what way could it draw more? Taking advantage of every opportunity to give an answer. Be poised and ready. Let's pray, Father. God, I pray for me and for us that you would help us in this day to come, but year to come. That you would enable us, God, to live as people wisely. That you would cause us to take advantage of every opportunity to live our lives in such a way that we could show Christ and show him, honestly show him as he is. Father, for us as a church, I pray that you would continue to enable us to keep the main thing the main thing, that we would continue to keep our focus upon Christ, that you would keep us from falling into traps of being unclear and actually keeping people from the true gospel open doors. Enable us to declare it clearly. Father, in the course of life, I, I know it, it is difficult to keep the main thing, to keep the, the, the main thing, to keep it, keep Christ before us. So I pray most especially for those who are struggling, for those who find themselves in difficulty, whether it be in context of relationships of marriage or family, con- with children or parents. Difficulties because of the way the economy is, difficulties because of just the sin in our lives. And no doubt the difficulties that come because of grief and disappointment and loneliness. And the difficulties that come because of the real fear that comes from tragedy and difficulty. I pray for Ray Brown Mendy's dad. I pray for him, Father, that you would bring healing to his body from this fall that he had. And I pray that you would give doctors wisdom and that they would be able to help him. Father, I pray that you would be with Ray, that he would draw closer to you, his wife, as well. They would cast their cares upon you, that you would be more clear to them in these days than ever before. Father, I pray for those who proclaim the gospel, other pastors in our own community, and 
throughout our country and the world. I pray for those in our own church. I pray for Len Andyshek, God, as he has opportunity to make proclamation of the gospel to international students. I pray you'd open doors for him, that you would enable him to continue to speak boldly and clearly. For Dan Rudman, God, as he goes through the community and you give him opportunities, Father, I pray that you would open doors for Dan to be able to share the gospel of Christ clearly as he does with power. Pray for all of us as a congregation of people, God, that we would, in fact, live wisely, take advantage of every opportunity, speak graciously, seasoned our, season our speech with salt, enable us to take advantage of every opportunity. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.